Niebuhr and Versu Ethics continued. Let's get it. You're listening to the Love Thy Niebuhr podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Road Niebuhr. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined as always by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Well, our guest today, this is kind of a part two type of episode where we are diving into Paradoxical Virtue, the, the book we started discussing uh, last week with our guest, uh, Dr. Kevin Carnahan. Um, but our guests today are the doctors Tom James and David True. Tom is professor of theology and ethics at Union Presbyterian Seminary and the author of many papers and books. Uh, his, I, I, the book that I found online was um, In Face of Reality, The Constructive Theology of Gordon D. Kaufman. Um, and David is the editor of the academic journal Political Theology and the Associate Professor of Religion at Wilson College. He is author of many works, and he is co-editor with Kevin Carnahan, our guest last week, of the book we started discussing on the last episode, Paradoxical Virtue, Reinhold Niebuhr, and the Virtue Tradition. Tom, David, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I w- can I offer one correction? I left union in 2012 so I'm, no, <laughs> I was, I'm no longer there i'm a parish pastor in in ohio where but, uh, oh wow where in ohio uh, toledo area oh wow we're down in cincinnati so okay cool i didn't know that that's crazy yeah uh oh sorry about that that was an you know you risk that when you look for biographies online, I guess. Also, I I am no longer at Wilson, so no way. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I saw you got a big grant, so I thought maybe he's independent now. Is that what you're doing? Um, now I'm an interim pastor at Poplar um, nice. Presbyterian Church, which is a total. I don't know. It's just it's a blast for me. I mean, uh, I don't know how they're doing. I love. But. Hey, we're all there with you, man. I mean, I left uh, academia too. I still have kind of one foot in the door, but yeah, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a I'm a minister now, and we're all uh, clergymen. So, oh, that's um, great. One one foot is is a good. You know, it's about all you want. I after <laughs> having both feet in, yeah. Um, so. In preparation for today's discussion, uh, we, the hosts, have read an essay in which both Tom and David collaborated. Um, That can be found in the book Paradoxical Virtue. It's called Reinhold Niebuhr and Phronesis. Um, As usual, the way this will work is we have each prepared questions for Tom and David. I'll start and we'll go around and around for about an hour and then we'll wrap up. Um, So my first question is... uh, goes goes like this so you 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 guys set up a central question here that i think is a truly original use of niebuhr um and very much needed and it could only come out through i think a virtue centered examination you're basically asking is niebuhr's process of phronesis or practical wisdom something that should be imitated um and you go into this but i'm i'm basically just going to tee it up for you guys what do you say to someone who says Niebuhr was basically just utilitarian using Christian language? You know, that's a central character of Niebuhr when, when we're writing. 
and our feeling was that it was just flat. It didn't. So we, we had been working on a collection of Niebuhr writings, short Niebuhr writings that uh, where we found in, in those writings, we, we thought we saw a theologian at work on a host of cultural issues, political and non-political drawing on a common theology um, and able to speak to a range of issues with, in some cases, discriminating judgment. So that's actually, that that didn't look to us like utilitarian ethics. It looked like something more was going on, something deeper, but also something that could um, offer specific guidance in particular context maybe something that you didn't always see in Stanley Howard was. I mean, I would also say that I, you know, I, I overheard a little bit of the conversation with Kevin and I think we agree with him that he's concerned about the character of agent or the, the nature of human agency. Right. But also normatively, how do you cultivate a kind of an, a kind of agency that can be responsive on the one hand to what we might call transcendent ideals uh, in a way that's engaged flexibly and creatively. And I don't think he's miles and miles apart from James on this, but with the realities of the world that he's grappling with, which are uh, obviously deeply complex and conflicting and so forth. So I think, I think because of the complexity of the world that he has such a deep appreciation for, and in addition to that, his loyalty to these transcendent ideals. I mean, you see in, in um, interpretation of Christian ethics how he has such a uh, a rich uh, appreciation for love, right? Um, and it require in order to sort of do the dance of theological ethics in a kind of complex world with these sort of high flown ideals. Um, I think he ends up coming around to the notion that. Um, it's a certain kind of agency, whether it be a, a personal agent or a collective agent, i.e. the nation or something like that, uh, has to have certain kinds of capacities uh, to act decisively, but also humbly, right? So I, I, I just think, unlike James, as I read James, and it's been a little while since I've dipped into William James, but in the, in the whole pragmatist tradition, he has a deep awareness of how agents can be need to be of a certain sort to be able to grapple with the problems that we face yeah and would it be fair to say that maybe to Niebuhr that is accepting certain absolute commitments but also accepting their relative forms in in life could that be a fair distinction between James and Niebuhr yeah I think so I mean I don't know what you think Dave but um it seems like the for example I I cited the example of love I and mean, this is a the classic one and it functions a little bit like a regulative ideal except unlike the Kantian conception of that it impinges upon us um and it it judges and relativizes any lesser ideals that might be might be thought to be embodiments of love um but it's a you know robin levin talks about this and we're not operating with the same conceptuality as Robin Lovin necessarily, but he's got this sense of there being a moral realism to Niebuhr. Uh, and so the ideals that, that he traffics in sometimes are not purely conceptual. They are really components of the world that God has created. 
and therefore they impinge upon us and demand some kind of response from us. And um, just to add on the relativized, I mean, I think I think that a key thing with Niebuhr throughout, and that you know maybe he sometimes loses track of or loses touch with is a concern, uh, a critique of complacency, of moral complacency. So um, that's where love, also equality, liberty, are really supposed to press on that complacency, right? He wants to build in a kind of moral tension. Yeah. And so it's a kind of critique of bourgeois, middle-class um, Christian ethics. And the problem he runs into then is, okay, I've got tension. I can, I can critique um, the kind of middle-class ethic, um, but how can I, how can I provide guidance beyond the critique? And I think that's one of the places you see him push for what he kind of in the middle years calls a, a, a practical ethic and a, 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 pra a more practical approach. Sometimes he refers to it as a pragmatic approach. And he really thinks this is a problem for Protestant ethics, um, that we, we can't speak to the concrete. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that's that, and that's kind of where it gets us to um, practical wisdom. So James is too simple. If you were to fling yourself into James, that is <clears throat> that doesn't bother the conscience enough. Um, he likes to set up these absolutes like um, uh, against idolatry, um, against sin, um, that and toward agape love uh, that kind of disrupt a purely Jamesian formulaic type of pragmatism. Um, creating that tension actually gets him out of that. Well, and it, it's funny because <clears throat> we, uh, in in reaching out to how uh, Dr. Harwas, he he wanted to have us do some reading before we had him on, and he had us read his latest book, the uh, Fully Alive. Uh, and it's funny because Is, in the, are, you, are you sure that's his latest? I mean, I think uh, he might oh, be coming, coming out with probably, Yeah, he's probably written four paperbacks since then. As you can yeah. tell, we're not well, very it's really recent. It's really recent. He he has he has a, a, a the the one of the, the title where he really drills into Niebuhr in the book. He, he calls it's titled um, basically just says like Reinhold Niebuhr, an insightful. Like he, it's kind of a it's kind of a dig at him because pretty much at the beginning of the chapter he says that like Niebuhr was really he had he was very insightful about practical wisdom. And then he infused that with theology, but they didn't actually go together. He just kind of, people listened to him because he used that practical wisdom and people were like, oh my gosh, that's so insightful for my life. But it didn't have anything to do with the theology or it was disconnected. I'm sure he wouldn't quite say that it's completely disconnected, but he, he, he's pretty strong about it in there. Um, the, yeah, uh, maybe he just can't read Niebuhr. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Well, the, uh, Zach, you got a question or... Oh no! Go go for it. Yeah, um, I just kind of want to jump off of Cliff's uh, question about uh, can Bernices be imitated, and and this question might be like, what comes first, chicken or the egg? Um, but I, I realize you're setting up um some distinctions between other approaches to Niebuhr. Uh, namely, some people just consider him either someone who just uh, kind of relies on intuition and dialectical thinking. Now, I don't think you guys are throwing that out. 
I think you guys are just adding in another element uh, to what Niebuhr is doing. So my question to you guys is, if we're asking about can Niebuhr's phronesis or practical wisdom, can it be imitated? What is like the intrinsic relation between intuition, dialectical thinking, and then practical uh, wisdom? What I mean, do they all uh, invest in each other? How does that come about? And is is that generality the way we imitate it, or are we trying just to, you know, we're not trying to mirror neighbor like a image for image thing? Does that make sense? Yeah, you want to handle that, Tom? I mean, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your your question is a, well, it's a normative question, right? And and there, I think, I don't know if we want to. I don't know if we want to imitate Niebuhr, uh, Dave and I, Dave and I personally, um, I think we have kind of uh, come to the realization that um, we're much more invested in affect than Niebuhr was and af the affective orientation of an agent and the act, you know, the affective dimension of agency. And it seems like in a way that's where agency begins right that's where the kind of the prophetic elements of Niebuhr and you can see this a little bit in his early writings and and the uh what is it the uh, moral man and immoral society near the end he talks about the sublime madness of soul uh which takes possession of people and and yeah. and, and kind of and enables them to push through boundaries and to think different kinds of thoughts but also to you know perform different kinds of actions that are more courageous and sort of break breakthrough barriers and so forth. And in our own kind of constructive thinking, um, we think there's tremendous value in that in that early phase of Niebuhr's life, which kind of gives at least has hints, stronger hints, let's say, of the kind of effective dimension, the madness of soul that's necessary in, in arriving at a form of political agency um, mm -hmm. that that is creative and productive. So I don't know. I mean, I do think that to, to go back to your question, the way you originally formulated it, the kind of I don't know if it's all dialectical thinking, but it's a, a, a kind of an orientation. Yeah. That's got to proceed and shape the way Phronesis operates. And I think it does in Niebuhr. I think Arawas is just wrong about that. Um, I think you can't really separate Niebuhr's performance of Phronesis. I'm not sure he has a conception of Phronesis, but his performance of it, as the article says, I don't think it can be separated from the kind of Augustinian orientation. And, um, you know, I think for us, we want to modify the orientation somewhat. But, um, you know, I, I, I think we do find him to be a, a, a great example of someone who sort of dances this dance uh, and working out of this kind of uh, comprehensive view of the world or a comprehensive vision of the world uh, and enacts a kind of... Um, practicalism that that's that flows out of it i don't know what you think dave no i think that's that's well said um i think that's that's exactly right an orientation that that may have dialectical dimensions to it um, mm -hmm. um pushing for a practical wisdom grounding a practical wisdom and you know i mean i think niebuhr sometimes writes um in an intuitive way but that doesn't mean he's a, he's an intuitionist Mm -hmm. Yes, I see what you're. I oh. see what you're saying. I mean, what would you think about something like um, 
we we start off with like with the general awareness and it, but the act in itself to where you know with david uh Karen was saying uh in the last episode that we need to have some sort of perspective a transcendent perspective from the outside that can uh go back and look at us and kind of critique us and so it, it kind of adds a new dimension of setting up new problems for us to think about and so it, we're not just aware of just random problems. You know, I go around and I see poor people and I go, that's pretty bad. But if I don't input that into some sort of symbolism of of charity or, uh, you know, Christ or something, then the way the problem I am oriented toward the problem won't change unless I input certain things within that. So the dialectic uh, would seem to me to be a sort of, precondition but also the addition to to what what is intrinsic related to the affect of what Niebuhr is trying to get at but I don't know maybe I'm just saying a bunch of random crap which I normally do but no I think that's exactly right though the orientation if we can continue using that word Mm -hmm. shapes what we see right and we don't see problems like from from a neutral point of view, of course. I mean, nobody sees anything from a neutral point of view, yeah. but we don't see them in an, in entirely empirical terms. We see them in relation to a vision of the good or the vision of God, uh, or, or some kind of apprehension, whether it be affective yeah. or intellectual, of of God's reality and and Christ for us for Christians. And I think that shapes the way we see things. So it actually shapes the phrenesis, right? I mean, the the way of phrenesis is, or practical wisdom is about seeing the world as it is, but that's not simply a reading, a neutral reading off of circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a reading of circumstances in terms of, I think, you know, one way to think of it is the myths that we have, right? Uh, um, and and so, I mean, I think, I think epistemologically, it, it really isn't just a matter of combining empirical experience with... On top of it, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 much more complicated and rich than that, as you suggest. There's something that Anselm does in De Verite that I, I kind of I won't go into it, but yeah, it's something similar. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards. You can't just throw it out there and not discuss <laughs> it. Well, I mean, it goes right back to August, Augustine's chapter ten confessions, but in Anselm, he poses this problem where he says, "Well, if I'm looking through a mirror." And it's a colored mirror, and I see my friend on the other side, and he appears to be a different color. Um, is you know the sense the senses that are uh, imprinting on my mind or my experience, my what I'm receiving through my sensations, um, they aren't wrong. It's that my reason, as such, uh, is unable to uh, conceive it correctly. So it's not necessarily experience that is giving you the false sensation. It's the way your mind mistakes what is true in that case. Um, so it's like Augustine's or in the water. Well, yeah, I mean, even the thing about the about the food thing you brought up earlier in our last episode, Augustine says that the images and memories we uh, create from those is through the sensations. They go through the gateway of taste, the gateway of hearing. But ideas are something different. They're more intrinsic properties. But yeah, sorry. There, there you go. Steve. I'll shut up now. <laughs> go ahead, Zach. You have another? Yeah. Well, I was just going to. So at the start of the book or at the start of the chapter, sorry, um, I I did a, I did a little uh, I had you guys had a chapter which summarized kind of your four main components <laughs> of 
Niebuhr's phrenesis. And I threw it into chat GPT so that it could write it in a more quickly understood manner. <laughs> Uh, and the four points were uh, Niebuhr reason. You could obviously you can correct ChatGPT if they're wrong here. Um, it says uh, point one: Niebuhr reasons with a specific goal in mind. Point two: Niebuhr understands there are limits uh, to what can be achieved. Number three: Niebuhr considers the capabilities of people involved. And number four: Niebuhr's thoughts and ideas are meant to be part of a public conversation. And it was two and three that I wanted to kind of hone in with you guys on. Because, and I actually, if we had gotten the time with Kevin, I, I wanted to get into it with him because I began to realize more and more, the more I read Niebuhr, the more I read about him, how much he relies on, it seems like relies on speculation about limits for one and about the capabilities of the people involved. And, you know, uh, but at, at a time in a past life, I was, I was a part of uh, a counseling program. And so I had to take counseling classes for like, um, uh, marriage counseling. And one of the things that they warn you against is uh, mind reading. They say, do not mind read. You know, don't assume the motives of the other people or it can be very detrimental. And I'm realizing, you know, Niebuhr did that a lot, it seems like. And I, I could be wrong, but do you, do you guys think that there is harm in that? Do you think that, uh, is there a way that Niebuhr maybe tempers that that I'm not picking up on? Or yeah, I just I just want to get your guys' take on that. So I think the, I mean, it's a nice question. Uh, does Niebuhr speculate as to the limits and capabilities of agents? I think that's going to vary. So if you have a, maybe you have a specific example in mind, but um, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's always an empirical question, right? So it's, it's partly um, normative when you're talking about Vietnam and you're asking about democracy, there's not some playbook to go to. I mean, um, and he, on the other hand, it's not simply speculation. He has his take on democracy that's in conversation with others. And that then he's able to speak of limits and capabilities. And, and our, you know, our judgment was he's, he's better there than on sexuality and the family mm. where there is a kind of speculative dimension but it, it doesn't it in some ways it doesn't seem speculative because he it's really grounded in kind of cultural assumptions that he's just importing or drawing mm. on tom i don't know if you want to add to that mm. um i no I, I don't think so i think that's exactly right that especially when you get to the question of sexuality he assumes a lot about women's motivations and what what female flourishing would look like and so forth that are really just reproducing cultural assumptions at that point. So just if, in follow-up to that, do you feel like his uh, method of phrenesis, I guess you could say, which I guess you guys, you guys have already said there's not a method necessarily, but um, the way that he approached phrenesis, is it possible without that kind of, I almost think risky speculation, you know what I mean? Like uh, that's, that's what my mind automatically goes to. Is, is it possible to, to, practice phrenesis like Niebuhr without inherently running into these very precarious sometimes I mean obviously like uh, um, in the last chapter in the last chapter we looked at he talked about how Niebuhr kind of got lucky in the fact that a lot of his speculations and judgments worked out pretty well some of them have been forgotten to history and we just don't talk about them um, and that's you know I yeah I mean my sense on that is I mean part of 
part of our interest was showing how the theology intersects with the concrete so that he can he, it's it's not simply speculative there's an empirical dimension to what he's doing across a range of context but m more of where he gets in trouble or where you know you kind of wince um if 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 you appreciate neighbor you, you there there are downsides uh, i mean there are failures um and i think that tends to be not where he's speculating in an ambitious way but where he's resigning to um he, he relaxes the moral tension and acquiesces to cultural cultural situations mm. whether but i'm sorry but I would, oh, sorry go ahead whether it's on women and families or on race um, mm. go ahead tom i was just going to say that that is a that is a risk i mean Failing yeah. in just the same way that Niebuhr fails there is an inherent risk uh, in trying to account for, you know, motivations are part of the, I mean, that's key to understanding history um, and a variety of social problems and so forth. So I think I think he does get it wrong there a, a fair number of times. And I think I don't know how you get around. I don't know how you avoid the possibility, at least, of doing that. Well, okay. I, guess, I think it's a, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it's almost like, you know, I, I read a, a, a book, a biography. I had to read it for a class. It was on the, uh, the founder of Walmart, Walton. I forgot his name. Sam um, Walton. Sam Walton. Yeah, Sam Walton. And he, um, and you get to the end of the book and you're like, wow, that he's that was pretty incredible. But pretty much only he could have done that. There's like a select group of like 100 people that have lived in the last 100 years that could have done what he did because he was so, because he had such an ability to do the things that were necessary and when they asked me to report on it in class, I remember being like, this is because it was a leadership class. I was like, this is not a good example of leadership because you can't replicate it. And I sort of wonder sometimes as, as I as we're talking about the speculation, he had ability to land it a lot more than I think a lot of people would. Um, he, but he, you know, yeah, go ahead. Baked in to Niebuhr is the assumption, right, that he's going to get things wrong. And right. and. I'm reminded of a somewhat recent article by James K. Smith on kind of re-examining the irony of American history. And basically, James K. Smith is reading Niebuhr back into Niebuhr. And it's this process of, okay, given the, the principles he sets up, uh, the myth of innocence, for instance, can we read the myth of innocence back into Niebuhr to show the blind spots he even had about things like race? Um, he doesn't even like, I don't remember Niebuhr bringing up race and it is such um, a, so many of our moral failings in the United States is, comes from this myth of American innocence. Um, this blind spot to in many ways, our country's original sin. And so I think that there's a, a never-ending process with Niebuhr of reading him back in on himself. And you could say that we do this with scripture also, that, you know, it's almost like, I think it was the Quakers and those guys had to read scripture back in on itself to, to get a good critique of slavery. Um, you have to take some of the central principles that scripture or Niebuhr is pushing 
and turn them around on maybe the cultural blind spots of the time. Yeah, I think I think I think that's right. And I, I mean, I think that's I mean, I think that's kind of a legacy of the Augustinian tradition uh, of self-suspicion that, that Niebuhr picks up. And maybe even a, a, a healthy suspicion of virtue itself. Um, and you guys bring this up and this kind of goes into my uh, my next question. Uh, you say near the beginning that virtue, the, to Niebuhr, virtue was, quote, beyond fragile. It was dangerous. And you speak of his suspicion of these virtues. And I love the way you put this, because I, I think this is something that you put, you plop neighbor, neighbor into virtue ethics and you get these new kind of colorful new ideas. Um, but would you say this central suspicion of virtues actually ironically makes him a good virtue ethicist? Well, that's a softball. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that is kind of, I think that's what drew Dave and, and, and me too, thinking about Niebuhr and and, and virtue terms, uh, is precisely because he gives you such an interesting kind of paradoxical. That's why the I guess I didn't I had nothing to do with the book title, but that <laughs> you know the, the paradoxical virtue is a really apt title I think because because um, ironically his suspicion of virtue, which it can be read throughout his corpus, right. Um, makes him particularly attentive to the uh the, the you know complicated features of human human agency human nature and it does make him a more perceptive self-critic as well as critic of other people's like more of a you know an ideology a critic of ideology as well um mm -hmm. in interesting ways and you you bring this up too that like even among the best aristotle like the the farthest you can get is oh, we need to have a moderation of moderation. But with Niebuhr, he goes farther than that. And he says there needs to be a suspicion of moderation itself, basically. There needs to be a suspicion of the virtue itself. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's right. And I also think that is, in some sense, uh, an Augustinian legacy. But certainly with Niebuhr, you know, I mean, I mean, self-righteousness is on every page, right? I mean, he's right. writing about that's a central critique throughout. Um, so yeah, I mean the, the virtue project is I mean, is there is there even a virtue project there? It's very <laughs> but there is through its negation, weirdly. Yeah. Well, I was gonna ask because the, the, the paradox isn't necessarily in the like analytic um relation between the idea ideas of like justice or and mercy like as in Christian tradition, but it's actually in the experience of trying to do the right thing or say the right thing at the right time, but not knowing in the future, maybe you actually said the wrong thing or you said you didn't do the right thing at all, you know, uh, whatever the, the future brings. The humility itself is a virtue yeah. uh, of recognizing that you could be wrong. But then that brings, the, it, it. I guess it really... I don't know if it turns into a paradox or a circularity at that point to where we're just kind of rehashing and going back over and over and over. I'm just But then you have an, it's not a problem. You have a bonus virtue of courage. You have sure. to run up, up against humility. Sure. But yeah, I but I think life is quite circular. It's nice. There's really no yeah, yeah. it's difficult to get know. out of it. That's good. Zach. You're on mute. Yeah. 
So this is sort of a practical question I'm going to formulate it here. Um, so I was very eager to read you guys' chapter, partly because I'm this whole summer I'm preaching on the Proverbs. Um, and I'm always trying to convince these other these other two guys that I think the most Niebuhrian book is Proverbs. Um, I just think that he could have preached endless sermons out of there, just picking out one verse and going to town. Um, how, how do you think his view of Phrenesis is, was invor, informed by like a biblical... I'm not going to nail you down to the specific book of Proverbs, but just in terms of looking at the New Testament, Old Testament... How do you think his view was shaped, uh, his view of Phronesis? Is there uh, certain scriptures you guys think that he drew upon to kind of form that? Is there a um, certain book of the Bible, maybe, Proverbs, maybe? <laughs> I mean, That's I a have... great question, Dave. Do you know, do you have a, th a thought about that? Because I'm drawing a blank. No, my, my own take would be, you know, it, it, it is more the orientation that you get a theology that's biblically grounded, mm -hmm. but the central Jesus story um, for Niebuhr, again and again in these kind of um, programmatic pieces where he's laying out questions of meaning, you're going to go back to um, a crucifixion story that talks about love uh, and and human um, righteousness at its best and pride. So human pride versus divine love. Um, divine love suffers in weakness. Um, human pride exalts, but to its own judgment. Well, yeah. And so, you know, that that kind of gospel story then funds um, an agape love that that sits uh, that nothing can live up to. But then, how do we practice morality, right? If mm -hmm. nothing, so I think it's that kind of dialectical move um, that then calls for, you know, some kind of compromised approach. Um, and eventually he works his way to what he calls a practical approach. So that's, that's where it's, that's where I, how I would see it. But I mean, I want to, I want to hold out the possibility that there is some connection to wisdom literature, but I don't know. I did, I just, I can't think of instances where he cites wisdom literature and how that works for him. Um, but I like, I like the question. I just don't, I just don't feel like I know what the answer is. Well, and you know, I, the reason I brought it up is I was reading, I've been reading through the Proverbs to try to find which ones I want to preach on and things like that. And it was Proverbs two and three that I was most, I preached Proverbs two, part of Proverbs two. And like, there's this section where, uh, you know, he's, it says seek wisdom over and over and over again, in all these different ways, seek it urgently. And then it says, well, wisdom's a gift from God. And it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of this kind of, uh, well, you both, you have this paradox. And so I see these paradoxes kind of appearing all throughout the Proverbs. Mm. And then in uh, th in three, there was a line from your guys' chapter where you talked about, how, I believe it was your chapter, um, where you talked about um, how like something like faithfulness or something like um, loving kindness was an embodiment of the, um, the attributes of God. I think it was your guys' chapter. And so I just kind of saw that overlap, you know, as I was reading your guys' chapter and reading through the Proverbs, it was like, oh, I could kind of see how some of these things are emerging. But yeah, sorry to put you on the spot. I just... No, no, that's fine. I think also, you know, your reference there to wisdom, Niebuhr does write of frequently in some places of a kind of a biblical wisdom and then this practical wisdom, mm. right? And the two are very much related for him. Not in an easy way, but um, the one kind of 
grounds or funds everything. The other uh, is what we need to, to work at if we're to live responsibly in the world. If, if I may interject here, <clears throat> I'm not going to try to answer it better than the authors themselves here because, but I do think that you have resources in here that point to a specific kind of biblical uh, view. And I actually grimaced a little bit when Zach mentioned the Proverbs in Niebuhr, because the Proverbs, there's no eschatology. And um, wisdom literature, there's uh, seldom eschatology. I disagree wholeheartedly okay. with you. <laughs> okay, okay, that's fine. But it seems a little bit more flattened and um, uh, than, than Jesus's teachings. And what you guys pose here in the section called a practical approach from the very beginning, I, I, I you might be channeling interpretation of Christian ethics here um, of you say Niebuhr's call for a more practical approach emerged out of his own understanding of the ethic of the New Testament as an ultimate or eschatological ethic. You go on to say he writes that, quote, the ethic of the synoptic gospels is eschatological in its framework and in substance enjoins uh, the purest love. And I'm wondering if this collision, a lot of people here, you know, practical, their mind doesn't go to eschatology. They seem worlds apart. In fact, a lot of people who might leave evangelicalism, uh, they have a bad taste in their mouth because of all the eschatology. Let's just get rid of all that stuff. But what you guys seem to be suggesting here is that actually it's the collision that that eschatology sets up that carves out our practical ethic. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that way of putting it. That's really, really nice. Well, yeah. But I mean, uh, it's interesting to, I mean, I think it's hard to put all, all wisdom literature in a box, right? I mean, and, I, and I, I'm listening to you guys talk about Proverbs. I do seem to remember, you know, I, 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 it, it feels like a neighboring response to Proverbs might be might want to pay attention to the ideological content of it as mm. as core as court wisdom. I don't know if that's right, but I I just that just kind of a thought that occurs to me that, um, you know. Is there is there is there a way in which the transcendent penetrates court wisdom and, tr and challenges it and troubles it in that text or in other texts? Um, and I think that'd be a kind of a Niburian question to ask with that literature, though. I don't know. I don't know. Again, I don't know if he does that anywhere. Well, Zach, you say that Proverbs, there's eschatology everywhere. I, I want to hear from you. Like, do well, you, is there anything I, come to mind about like how eschatology impinges upon the world to create this understanding of phrenesis? Well, I won't detract from your guys' chapter. I don't want to <laughs> get away. I'll, I'll basically just, the, the thing that I think is, I think especially, I think that it definitely penetrates uh, a lot of Jesus's teachings are, I think, influenced by the Proverbs um, or, and especially by the wisdom teaching. Like uh, one of my favorite books by Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Uh, he's at, I think, Midwestern Theological Seminary. And um, he he's a big proponent of interpreting uh, the word blessed or or the word, um, the Greek word mercurios as, as um, flourishing. So it's talking about flourishing in this life, but also in the life to come. It's about living. And, and, he, and his argument is that the wisdom literature is about shaping life in that direction, shaping life in a direction that is leading to human flourishing. Obviously, that's contrary to human. Um, so, but he would say he would place Jesus as a as a wisdom teacher. That's one of the things he'd primarily argue for. Um, 
And so he's saying that all of Jesus' eschatological teaching and even his use of wisdom, because he's using it often, um, is like you guys are saying, he's using that eschatology to say, look, like, oh, sorry, you have wisdom literature, you have wisdom, and it's trying to teach you about human flourishing and how you can uh, live out human flourishing in this life, but also in the life to come. That's vindicated in the life to come. Um, is that making sense? I don't know if that answers. I was trying to summarize my the answer to that question. <laughs> it does. I mean, I have to say it doesn't sound particularly Niebuhrian to me, but um, I mean, in you know, maybe I always struggle with this because I come from a kind of a Calvinist background and Niebuhr had, feels so Lutheran on this point. Um, but it seems like the gospel gives him this. It does seem like a lot rides on the gospel and its contradiction of the of human wisdom. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to see a little bit more continuity between between let's call it you know i think of the wisdom literature and i took a wisdom literature class in seminary and so forth and i i thought that you know it's it has this character of being very um very embedded in human experience that's shared internationally and across you know and and so it has a very human component to it that's grounded in a kind of a theology of creation and i would like to see more continuity than i think i get in niebuhr between that and the New Testament, but I, I don't, I see, I see such a, um, maybe I'm wrong, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. I'm reading, I'm reading him too much, you know, in, in, in light of a kind of a received neighbor on this question, but, um, I, I see a much more paradox and tension between the old Testament and the new Testament when I read Niebuhr. Interesting. You know, I think I actually kind of have a question that is slightly related to this and, um, use the, the term or the phrase um the transcendent penetrating uh the concrete and given you know all we know about transcendence and eminence the you know god being the ground whatever um i am more particularly focused on how that relates to practical wisdom of phrenesis here um i know i know niebuhr is cautious and critical of progressive um social change but what would be a let me back up just a bit <laughs> with with women right we were talking about uh neighbors kind of relaxes back into cultural assumptions right as such and doesn't really give a critical eye to the uh prevailing wisdom and powerful interest at play so if we want the transcendent to penetrate the uh, imminent or what we're going through, like political change or phrenesis, um, is progress an example of the transcendent um, coming into the world or penetrating the world? Or what would you say to that? Um, I, I would say, I don't know, Dave, if you have a response to that, but it seems like what it what it upsets and i'm going to i'm going to kind of use go to the word the language of upsets or troubles mm. rather than penetrates i know i use the word penetrate sometimes yeah. but it has a almost has a masculinist uh dimension to it that i want to sure. avoid but it has a, a kind of a troubling um or, or upsetting or you know um i see problematic problematizing if you want to use mm -hmm. it that way mm -hmm. um it i say so the way it has to do with what the way it contributes to practical reasons is it keeps it churning yeah, uh, keeps it from falling back on, or it should, on assumptions about what is natural, what is good, what is uh, normal. I mean, I think it has the capacity to upset um, that. In my article, 
which we're not talking about the next chapter in the book, mm -hmm. I talk about how Antigone, uh, her actions to resist uh, Creon's, her uncle's uh, in the in the play Antigone, Sophocles' play Antigone, um, it, it uh, her resistance to Creon's reduction of all value to civic value is a way ends up upsetting upsetting the social order. And I think that's a cipher. That's a that's a, a, a an instance of the transcendent coming in and breaking up complacency. And so I think that I think the concern about the progressive social gospel stuff has always. I mean, I and I, I understand that as having to do with the assumption that um, American culture or Western culture is on this progressive path. And it leads to a kind of complacency about the 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 blind spots or the mm -hmm. you know what turn out to be the blind spots of Western value in relation to its you know interaction with the rest of the world and so on and so forth, and a lack of appreciation for crisis and how that um, how that leads to new opportunities as as well as new perils. So I think he thought the progressive view of the world in the, from the nineteenth century, early twentieth century was wrong. And he also was worried normatively about the complacency that that created. But I think, I think it creates a more radical kind of progressivism when you recognize that the divine is impinging upon us all the time and challenging our complacencies. And so, therefore, it keeps the process of moral reasoning open. Mm -hmm. But also, I don't think it necessarily means it's always negative. Like, it's not Karl Barth's uh, commentary on Romans. It's... I think he I think he thinks that there's a dynamic in process that allows us to respond to the divine um, in in sometimes radical ways. I'm thinking about, you know, an early book of his, which I, I confess, I love the early Niebuhr more than the later Niebuhr, even though I think there's some continuity between them. But um, I think his reflections at the end of an era. He talks about needing a more radical uh, conservative religion for a more radical politics. Because he wanted to take these myths of the transcendent seriously to open up political possibilities, and so I think, I think, I think that's the way it works for mm -hmm. him. That's interesting it, it, to put it in kind of a anthropological or scientific perspective. Um, the transcendent isn't always clarifying things. Uh, you take a doctrine like the incarnation, God becoming man there's one view that might say, yes, God becoming man finally makes everything clear, but it actually just complicates everything. It disrupts everything. So kind of in a more scientific lens, you have an observer standing outside of an experiment. The very act of observing both clarifies and disrupts the thing in itself simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's always this, uh, there's always this dichotomy, dialectic complication to the transcendence yep coming into the contingent uh world um it's never as clean as what bart wants it's it's a dirt like incarnation's a dirty process funny enough i i think um in a different tradition there's this guy i'm trying to work with um trying to apply for a phd his name is philip goodchild he works at university of nottingham and he's written stuff on metaphysics of trust and Big scholar on Deleuze, but he would actually says the exact same thing. Like most of the most of philosophy and theology clarifies, but it also complicates things further. It's never 
an end all answer. Um, and he says, it's really funny that the way he reads the parables of Jesus are just setting up problems to think about. And but it's it's setting up the complication in the right way. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's not just so, he's yeah. not setting up problems for the sake of problems. Yeah. 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 I think that's important because it's this is why he's well, I think it's, in a way, this is why he's different from Bart, because the, the troubling is not just a no to human pretension, but it's a it's a troubling that kind of directs us or at least invites us in a certain kind of direction um mm -hmm. which is i you know and the way I, I think it's emancipatory and uh you know egalitarian and lots of other things that's why i still read this stuff if it were not committed in that way i don't know if i'd find it very interesting just on that i think um i think all that's right i think what i mean what we haven't what no one has said is that there are there he doesn't, he's not one to talk about the traces of the divine in this or that social movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think there, there are upsides to that. There are also downsides to not, not being mm -hmm. able to do that. And maybe particularly downsides in a more imminent age um, when but, people are looking, you know, they want something, they, they want to see or taste or touch something. Um, I think, yeah. He tries to carry both sides, though. This came up with our discussion with uh, Kevin, but in Beyond Tragedy, um, he sets up the God of the Ark and the God of the Temple. Um, there's a specific God acting in history, but we also have to hold that intention with the universal God. Um, and he brings out Abe Lincoln's uh, second inaugural as an example of this, of Abe Lincoln in the same, um, it's a very small speech, the same speech, he condemns using scripture, he condemns slavery. But at the same time, he then also wants to say, but God has his own purposes. So it's trying to hold together the, the particular with the universal. And that collision that happens between the two is actually kind of the bedrock of, of Niebuhr's ethic. I think that the 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 condemnation is actually easier for Niebuhr than the identification of a trace of uh, or a trajectory of the divine, and that's a I think that's a bit of a problem. But, um, to, but I mean I think the Lincoln example is great because it's like yes, this is horrible. This goes against you know, um, what could be reasonably taken as divine ordering or the requirements of human nature, however you put it. But God has God's own purposes. There's mystery. Um, here and we can't you know we can't grasp fully what god is up to so there's a kind of agnosticism on one hand a faithful agnosticism on the other hand there's a, a no a, a bardian almost mm. a bardian no yeah. but i think what dave and i want like in our constructive work is to figure out is there a is there a yes to something <laughs> that we can commit ourselves to fully well I and this is the, this is a big neburian question that um it's either David Novak or Michael Novak. I always get them confused. A Novak um, is responding to Howard Wallace. And he's saying that, no, Niebuhr has absolute commitments. Um, and he names off, um, you know, uh, the abstention of idolatry. That is an absolute. Um, he has another commitment against sin. Um and and there's he actually comes up with a good list of maybe virtues that we could put there for Niebuhr that are absolute and unshakable. Um, that you that that maybe one point where he can say yes to something. 
you know, this is what God is. But it is, it is always through the back door. You know, it's, it's always via negativa. Mm-hmm. You know? That's right. That's right. But well, it's still so, some kind of positive affirmation, but through the via negative, as weird as that is. He did admit he is a, he's a tamed cynic. So, you know. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I mean, he, he, I mean, with Niebuhr, there's always this kind of critique of politicians claiming to be acting in the will of God, you know, or with the will of God, yeah. that this is what God's will, this war, this whatever. Um, it is Bart, it is like Bart in that way. The difference is Niebuhr then wants to push on and say, right, we can't we can't identify this as God's will, but we've you know we've got to nonetheless try and be moral beings. And this is his uh, bifurcation between the the priests and the prophet. Uh, you know, the prophet wants to caution the priest against knowing the divine. The priest wants to caution the prophet. No, we can know. You know, um, and and the prophet wants to stand on relative, you know, forms of injustice and, and stand against it. Um, and so the, the prophet's able to be more active and so on. Um, now, you bring up uh, politics. And by the way, we have time for, I think, one more uh, one more question. Zach, do you have another question after this? I have. Yeah, I have just one, just one short question. Are you good or you yeah, have one more? Yeah. OK, um, so. You brought up politics. Um, I had a friend who not long ago said that Niebuhr, still to this day, Niebuhr occupies a unique position in politics. Still, a kind of pastor and prophet to politicians, and he is, and he is so in such a way that no one else has ever or could o- ever occupy. Um, he, in many ways, lives rent free, you know, in politicians' heads, and many of them. What is keeping today's, many of today's kind of self-styled public theologians from occupying that same position, being that same perennial thorn in the side? Are today's public theologians too partisan? Are they too simple? Are are they not courageous enough? What Like, why can nobody fit in that spot? My own sense is the culture's moved on, okay. right? That we're um, living in a culture um that is much more um plural many forms of media um many more than neighbor faced and and the rise of the religious right has kind of um drowned out everything else the the the, the larger culture what sees here here's the here's thinks religion thinks the religious right so you know then the new york times has several um, re, you know, op-ed columnist with religious in, in, inflections, mm-hmm. um, but none of it seems to penetrate, to break through. So, I mean, I so just, he I kind of enjoyed a moment there where maybe mainline church was powerful, uh, you know, church attendance was up. Um, people were listening to the religious language. People are still re- listening to the religious language. It seems, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like if there were to be a Niebuhr today, it might come in an evangelical form. Or no, actually, no, he'd be he'd be thrown out <laughs> if he were in the evangelical. But that's who needs it. I mean, uh, and I guess we all need some Niebuhr, but it, yeah, I I can see that cultural thing. But to your 
to you guys' point about phronesis, why, like, and disregarding fame and the ability to have an audience like Niebuhr did, what's keeping people today from executing a similar style? That's a good question. (laughs) Like, are our public expressions of religion maybe overly simplified? Um, The way that we need religion today doesn't lend itself to, you know, trying to find wisdom maybe it's religion is morphed into uh, well, and religions morphed into more of a simple belief system that assuages the conscience rather than tries to complicate things i don't know so i, mean, I think i think there are probably have been thinkers um in theological ethics or maybe in pulpits you know who try and do a little bit of what niebuhr does uh, a lot of re- niebuhr readers out there but I wonder if it, because of our context, whether that isn't being assimilated in terms of you know how it's received into, let's say, a progressive uh, position. I mean, I, I feels like everything is getting sorted along partisan lines. Yeah. And if you try and be a centrist, you are by definition a progressive. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I've had interactions online with people that. I mean, Dave and I are not the biggest fans of civility as a governing principle of everything. Um, but I have had some conversations online where I try and urge civility and open-mindedness. And that <laughs> can get taken as a total, you know, a total siding with the Yeah, it becomes a political position that's on the left. The agora and, um, itself is political. It's, it's o- overcome by these uh, partisanships. Yeah. I don't know if that's a, a conclusive answer, but it seems like it seems like there are efforts to be kind of, let's say, Niburian that end up getting. Yeah. And I think in that vein, um, no one on I mean, right, especially the later neighbor is not popular on the kind of what tends to be the left. You know, um, Obama tried to channel Niebuhr, but it it it, it didn't really work. I mean, it, if anything, it. It kind of it came out as more of a humanism, yeah. Maybe a kind of um conservatism. Mm. I mean, I think yeah, I think it definitely tarnished Niebuhr insofar as he identified himself with Niebuhr for the left, I mean, because and, you know, he ends up he ends up having a lot of positions that stake out sort of center right territory from the start. Sort of conservative writers trying to kind of deepen their conversation on the right trying to make it something you know less um market oriented but it i mean that to, to me that's only so interesting because it's 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 a kind of dumbing down i mean it's 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 not the full Niebuhr, right i mean it's not it's not mm-hmm. necessarily what's most interesting about Niebuhr. that the kind of warnings about ambition and pride and progressivism and you know, it's all this cautionary stuff. Yeah. Um, Maybe simplicity is a part of it too. People want, I think, a simpler message. I think right. haven't idea... people always. Yeah. I mean, I well, mean, but was Niebuhr, communism Niebuhr, versus fascism. Niebuhr, I, Niebuhr was that... helpful, but only so helpful in the run up to uh, the Iraq War, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. that was an easy chance to critique um, pride. Yeah. And 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 several folks brought that to bear to know, you know didn't end up having any effect but 
Well, and just people, I, what I was meaning is just people's basic understanding of uh, Andrew Basevich, who we're having on next week. He he has a, a story of how he found Niebuhr, mm -hmm. was a parent who had given their child a book, uh, Irony of American History, for a high school graduation gift. <laughs> and and then he had found it at a, a garage sale years and years after that, and that's how he got into Niebuhr. And it's like, I can't imagine a high any high school I know picking up the irony of American history and understanding it to any degree. So I don't know. That might be a factor. Mm. But I mean, Basevich is a good example of Niebuhr today, right? Um, he's used, he's worked in Niebuhr very effectively, persuasively to critique mm. imperialism. Um, that kind of gets swallowed up in uh, the partisan debates. Yeah. You know, it's hard, it's hard to break through and form a consensus. So Tom has to go. Um, but do you have time for one more question, Tom, or you got to get? Sure. Why not? You go, okay, first. go ahead, Zach. All right. My, my question is real simple. Uh, I promise. Um, what do you, we're, if we wanted to know more about this connection between theology and wisdom, because I'm very interested in it, especially as it relates to Niebuhr, what, what book do we need to read? Right. And for our listeners, for us, where do we need to go in Niebuhr's corpus? Where, where is that? Where is that happening? That's that's a great that's a great question. I mean, what 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 you want to do is go look um, at one of the bigger articles. If it has meaning in the title, he's going to talk about wisdom, the biblical wisdom. I I think it's probably fair to say, isn't it, Dave, that he never really has a theory of how they interact. It's more performed in his work, and so mm. it's 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 hard to get. Like it's hard to go to one place and find find Niebuhr's own take on that stuff. But it's, it's going to, it's going to, I mean, it is, it's in the nature and destiny. I mean, he's, he's going to do it in spades there and it's going to yeah. be the eschatological and then an anthropology. Uh -huh. Right. So it's these two, there's a horizon and then kind of, um, preacherliness, pride, kind of constitutive who we are. But I think it's, those, I think it's, that gets at the crux of it. I think, um, but yeah, I think Nature and Destiny is is kind of the place to go. The greatest book of all time. <laughs> you heard it here. No, but seriously, it is. No, okay. All right, thank you guys so much for coming on with us. It was a great pleasure. Um, can't wait. To, can't wait to read the the rest of this paradoxical virtue. Um, I, I think uh, Tom has the very next chapter, so we're gonna have to uh, tackle that sometime. Um, thank you guys again, and uh, yeah. Uh, we'd love to have you back sometime hey Thanks that's great thank you guys and uh kudos you know you if you <laughs> that's a lot of conversation with kevin and then us so <laughs> yeah we had for our listeners we had to double up today so we just got done talking with kevin and put it all together yeah and zach's even confusing articles over there does this come from your book does this come from your article <laughs> hey good good luck with everything yeah, you too. Take care, guys. Thank Pleasure you. talking. Pleasure talking. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe. Write us a good review if you're enjoying it. And also, we've added a tip uh, feature on our Twitter slash X uh, account. So um, we, we do all this stuff for free. We're not getting anything for it. All we ask is we would like to raise just $100 because that's literally what it costs to stream everything every year 
Uh, it's like a once a year fee type of thing. But if you're enjoying it, um, and if you listen to us a lot, um, we just ask you for a couple bucks or something uh, just to help go uh, go toward that. But yeah, you can check out those details on our Twitter account. But thanks for listening. Um, yeah, stay tuned for October. Uh, we're going to be doing the October interviews again. We got some big names coming in. The Godfather of Niebuhr Studies himself, Robin Lovin, um, and several other uh, really uh, awesome guests. Um, can't wait to can't wait to get to it. All right, well, stay safe, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time.